Well, whether you're a mother, spiritual mother, or neither, you're a woman. Um, that's kind of what we're going to be speaking about this morning. And so, I want to say good morning again. I want to welcome you. Like I said, today's Mother's Day. And as you seek the Lord on a message on like what to preach on a day like today, um, I found myself thinking about different ways I could formulate a message, and I say I, of course, seeking the petition of the Lord, but, you know, you could talk about the origin of Mother's Day, but I think Steve's already done that. Um, I could even bend your ear with maybe an uplifting message and affirm your role as matriarch. I could even speak to the men in the congregation about how they need to honor the mother in their own lives. I could speak to the children in the congregation, but at the end of all of it, uh, I, I found something that would accomplish all of those simultaneously, and that is to just seek to bring glory to God. And, and that's what I'm going to try to do this morning. And so I would be amiss if I denied how inadequate I feel in opening the Word of God with you, especially on a day like today, where we celebrate the women in our lives who epitomize the compassion and love and care that is manifested fully in Jesus Christ our Savior. Nevertheless, my goal is to seek to bring glory to God, and so I hope that is what we'll do this morning. So what I'm going to do is, first I'd like to read the passage of Scripture we're going to look at this morning, and then I'm going to give a little bit of context. And context, as you may be aware, is some surrounding detail and explanation that helps us better understand the passage. And then finally, I want to share with you a couple of things that God makes painfully clear from the text, but I also want to share with you the eternal hope that he provides. And the main point I want to highlight in all of this this morning is the glory of God in motherhood. Please hear me with caveats. That's not to say if you're not, you're any less of a person, okay? God never said that. The Bible doesn't say that. Please don't hear me as saying that this morning. But with that said, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, we're going to be reading verses 14, 15, and 16. If you don't have your Bible, or you're online, it will be on the screen for you. That's Genesis chapter 3, verses 14, 15, and 16. And it's the first book. So Genesis chapter 3, 14, 15, 16. And if you are able, please honor the word of the Lord and stand as we read. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the hill. To the woman he said, I'll greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you'll bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Heavenly Father, I ask right now in the humility of my heart, Lord, that you would take these feeble lips and feeble words of mine, Father, and that you would empower them with your Holy Spirit, and that they would reach into the depths of our hearts, Father, this morning, that they would help us see, Lord, that you are King of kings and Lord of lords, and that you are over all. You're the King of the universe. And Father, I just pray that your word this morning, that we would 
look at it and break apart the bread of life together, that it would be a glory to you, that you would get glory, Christ would be exalted, and Father, that your Holy Spirit would sanctify your people and make them look more like Jesus than ourselves. Father, please give me clarity of thought in mind as I seek to articulate that which we have provided this morning. And Father, as we get ready to feast upon your word, we pray that you would just pour your spirit out amongst us as you did, your prophets and your New Testament church and your apostles. God, just continue to be with us, in us, and through us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. So, let's address what's happening here. Now, we may or may not be aware of the previous chapters, but it's important to set these verses in context. That is the bigger overarching picture of the entirety of Scripture, because if we don't do that, we could misrepresent the text. So what's going on pre-fall? Well, in a word, creation, right? Before the fall was creation. Prior to this, God had decreed to create a world in which all of its being and its essence would find its culmination in the king of the universe. God spoke through his word and created all that fills the heavens, the earth, and the seas. All the beauty we see in the world, the animals, the birds, the beasts, the bugs even, the aquatic life, some great, some small, the cattle of the field, the behemoth, the trees, the atmosphere, flowers, plants, bushes, shrubs, all of it was created by God's word and hand. And then he sets it in paradise with gigantic trees of every kind, pleasing to the sight, bountiful and delicious, beautiful, magnificent creatures roaming about the earth, a myriad of flowers of innumerable colors, shapes, sizes, and smells. And then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then Genesis 2 gives us a bit more of an intimate picture as it recounts an additional detail the creation of Adam and Eve. See, Genesis 1 is this bird's-eye view overarching of the entire creation's narrative. Genesis 2 zooms in for a more intimate look as God fashions man and breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man becomes a living soul. That's intimate. That's personal. It's a beautiful, amazing act of creation. But after God brings all the animals to the man to name, Adam noticed something, didn't he? Adam could not find a helper suitable for him. And so God says, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So God causes the man to fall asleep, takes from his rib, fashions from it a woman, and brings her to the man. Words can't even do justice, but this act of God is so high and wonderful, beautiful and imaginative, that the only thing the man could do is speak poetry. Started with Adam, not Shakespeare. <laughs> Adam must have been overwhelmed, awestruck even, praising God for all the good he'd already shown him in not only the creation, but the curiousness of his own existence. But now God continues to magnify his glory in creating something like Adam, yet uniquely different. Something that Adam could not find in the animal kingdom. Something that caused his heart to flutter. This creation that God brought to him causes him to continue giving praise to his God who is capable of such miraculous works. And then Adam finally speaks. 
This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken from man. And then he says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. For this very reason, this amazing, somewhat like him, but curiously different creation, not only to create life by the hand of Almighty God, taken from his own body, but to love and cherish and to create life, to subdue creation, to bring the utmost glory to God. For this reason, a man shall live his, leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Genesis 1, God continues to speak life into existence. All of creation, all the things that have the breath of life. After each day, God saw that all he had made, and behold, it was good. Then he comes to the end of the sixth day after fashioning the man. And it wasn't until after God brings the woman to the man that God saw everything he had created, and behold, it was very good. That would have been a great time for you ladies to be like, Amen! <laughs> Paradise, wonderful life, unity, community, relationship, husband and wife. I, with the expectation of little ones soon to follow. But something happens, doesn't it? The rhythm of creation starts to break apart. All of this beauty and goodness is about to become marred decay. All the light that shines is going to become darkness. The wonder and life of creation turned to fear and shame. The freedom these two felt now turned to self-idolatrous tyranny. Their perceived love of the Creator now turned to disdain for His commandments. The peace between Creator and creature now becomes fractured. Satan seeks to deceive and he succeeds. Eve takes of the fruit of the tree which God commanded, You shall not eat from it, and she eats and gives some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Like an epic moment in the greatest story ever told. We sit and we watch what happens. The audience cringes. They're on the edge of their seat, hair standing up on every end. Every bean and fiber shaking and trembling, wondering what's going to happen. And in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, corruption enters and destroys the beauty of God's good creation. Look again with me at verse 16. He said, To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain and childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. I think the first thing that God makes abundantly clear here is that sin has immediate and long-term consequences. There's a kind of dichotomy of pain here that God speaks about. Notice first he said that he will greatly multiply pain in childbirth. The, word, the Hebrew word you're using here is speaking specifically to the physical act of childbirth. And unfortunately, the immediate consequences of sin manifest in painful labor, sometimes lasting long time. The entire process of pregnancy is painful. Swollen legs, heels, possibly arms, not able to sleep, morning sickness, are all a result of the curse brought about by sin. Not to mention fatigue, mood swings, anger, emotional distress, postpartum depression, complications that lead to miscarriage, genetics, and various other ailments that affect the act of childbirth. But then there's a separate type of pain God speaks of. Physical. Then he says, in pain you will bring forth children. The word here is not so much talking about the immediate consequences of painful childbirth, but the long-term consequences of walking through life with a child, it hurts. Not always, 
But you see, before the fall, the mother-child relationship was to be one of beauty, grace, honor, obedience, and love. But not any longer. This pain is long-lasting and will continue to plague the mother for the rest of her life. My mother told me one time growing up, she said, you don't know what one of the most difficult things is about being a mother? I said, sure. Because <laughs> when you're young, you really care about that, right? <laughs> Tell me. She said, it's watching your children go from stepping on your toes to stepping on your heart, especially when they have big feet. I wore a size 13. Eve would experience pain in childbirth, but it pales in comparison to what she would experience in bringing forth children through life. Let me quickly look at verse 15 with you, which we're going to come back later. It says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. I'm sure that Eve would have held tightly to the promise of God in that verse. I do. Thank you, God. Somebody's coming to undo this mess we've got ourselves in. Yet Adam and Eve are still kicked out of paradise to live in life, a constant toil. I'm going to guess there's probably a lot of arguing and blame shifting going on too, just like in our day. Eve, why didn't you listen to the serpent? I told you God said not to eat from the tree. You never listened to me. And now because of you, we have to toil endlessly in frustration for the rest of our lives till we die. Well, Adam... You were standing right there. You didn't protect me like you were supposed to. You knew we weren't supposed to eat from the tree, but you took it anyway. You stood by passively waiting to see what would happen and did nothing. There was probably a lot more, especially when the kids came. But then something miraculous happens. Pregnancy. God made a promise. He said that one would come from the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. Adam! Adam, it's happening. God said one would come for me and would crush the serpent's head. I'm pregnant, Adam. It's happening. I can't believe it. All of this pain and anger and sadness, shame and sorrow is coming to an end. Oh, Adam, isn't it wonderful? The day of labor arrives with intensity, I'm sure, but God said he would do this, and that's okay because the man-child has come. The one that God said will crush the head of the serpent. What a glorious day it is. Not just one, she has two. This is even better than we thought. Eve's hopes, her aspirations, her love and desires are now wrapped up into her two baby boys. But why is there still so much pain and suffering and arguing? Why does Cain act the way he does if he's supposed to be the headstomping man-child that was promised? Doesn't matter. Eve has her children, and her dreams of returning to a pre-fall life is bound up in the promise of God she hopes to soon be fulfilled. But once again, Eve is distraught and must experience deep pain that cuts to her very core. Pain that causes her to tears to puddle around her feet. Her sadness is so heavy it weighs her down. Cain killed his brother, his mother's child. You know, 355 times the word mother is used in the Bible. If you still live at home, children, listen up. Solomon uses it 14 times in Proverbs when he speaks about a mother. And every single time, it is a warning to the child not to disrespect, dishonor, despise, curse, or bring shame upon his mother. 
And he was a king. Being a mother is difficult. Physical, spiritual, it's hard. In fact, I don't even think difficult accurately conveys the enormous burden that motherhood is. Moms, you're tired. You're dealing with so much. You might even be fighting medical problems. Sleepless nights, more than likely. Sick children, repeated feelings of inadequacy. Maybe even passive husbands like Adam. Wondering, but never out loud. Am I good enough? Am I a good enough mother to my children? When they mess up, do I show them grace or disdain? Mercy or wrath? Maybe some of you have children that grew up and became prodigals. Will they ever come back to the Lord? You pray and pray only to feel hopeless about them and sometimes life. And you begin to question your status, your abilities. You wonder if maybe you made a mistake in having children in the first place. Maybe it's younger children and you're thinking to yourself, if I have to go to one more parent-teacher conference, I'm going to scream. Maybe like Eve, you're so bound up in your children that all your worth and value is tied to their success or failure in the world. Moms, can I be honest for a minute? Your worth and value is not determined by their success or failures, nor your own. Your worth and value has been determined, signed, sealed, and delivered, and guaranteed in the person and work of Jesus Christ as he lay on that cross bleeding for you. He was the head-crushing man who would be born of a woman. The world will tell you that you're a bad mother if little Johnny doesn't have the latest cool stuff or isn't involved or participating in the newest fad or sport. Oh, you mean your child doesn't get straight A's? You mean, you mean little Johnny didn't hit the home running win? Your daughter's made mistakes? That's what the world tells you. It's true. Jesus says, all of that doesn't matter. You are inestimable value to him. That means it can't be measured. You want to know how I know that? Because he bled for you. If you don't think he matter, look at the cross of your Savior. You were tasked with one of the most complicated, emotionally, mentally, and physically draining roles ever created. Yet, is one of the most important. For some reason, though, we still buy into the world's lies. They'll tell you that you're just not good enough if you can't craft a grade A project for school like a female MacGyver. Jesus says, you know what? Stop all of that. 
that doesn't determine who you are. He does. In the eyes of your Creator and Savior, you are invaluable, not worthless, inestimable value. Even though your role is tiresome and takes a lot of work, it is one of the most important God ever created. And, and you know how I know this is because if you have kids or you've had kids or if, even if you've been a grandparent with kids, who do you think little Johnny or Susie is going to run to when they get a scraper or a boo-boo? Mommy. Who do they want up in the middle of the night when they don't feel good or the imaginary boogeyman is out to get them? Mommy. Moms, you must see your worth and value as it is in the king of the universe. You must run to Jesus and rest in him. You can't do everything. You weren't created to. You were created for a beautiful and unique role. Take your feelings of inadequacy, your pains and your frustrations, and yes, your tiredness, and lay it at the feet of Jesus, who promised to give you rest. That sin in the garden has immediate and long-term consequences, and as such, being a mother is an immensely weighty role that will drive you to despair or to Jesus. Please, let it drive you to Jesus. Maybe some of you don't have kids. That's okay. I told you, the Bible doesn't say it's any less of a value in the eyes of God. Paul didn't have kids either. And he took great pains, suffered, poured out tears for his children in the faith. That's how much he loved them. They might as well have been his kids. If you don't have any children, be a spiritual mother to a girl that needs it. Reach out to a younger mother who's struggling. Maybe it's a single parent household. And help be the mother. Be the compassionate person that comes alongside them and serves them as Jesus would. When you put everything at the feet of Jesus and run the race of motherhood in his power and strength, the glory of God in motherhood is on display for the world to see. And the world desperately needs to see that. The second thing that God shows us is sin destroys womanhood, marital, and maternal relationships. So we're going to look at 16 again, the second part there. God says, Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. God says to Eve that her desire will be for her husband, but he's going to rule over here. Now, we need to tread carefully here to make sure we understand the text clearly. So first off, what does the word desire mean? Well, this Hebrew word is used three times in the Old Testament. That's it. Twice in Genesis and once in Song of Solomon. This means that it can have positive and negative connotations. Unfortunately, here it's the same negative meaning that uh, it does when God uses it with his conversation with Cain. You remember Cain was rebellious and prideful. We recall in chapter 4, both Cain and Abel brought their respective offerings to the Lord, and God regards Abel's but not Cain's. Context tells us, as does later scriptures that refer back to that offering, that Cain did not truly worship God. Hebrews 11.4, By faith, Abel, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. 1 John 3.12, Not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother, and for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil. 
and his brothers were righteous. See, Cain did not bring his best because he did not truly worship God and his deeds were evil. But what happens is Cain's countenance falls when God doesn't appreciate what he brings. And what does God say? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. But you must master it. For this reason, the word desire God uses when speaking the curse to Eve about her husband carries with it negative consequences. It means to run over. It wouldn't make sense to be part of the curse if he meant it for good. So God, in essence, is basically saying, Eve, what you were originally created for to be a blessing, to be a marriage partner, a mother, a woman, is now corrupted as a result of sin. You will desire, that is, wish to rule over, run over, or lord over your husband, and thus your relationships will be greatly damaged, yet he will rule over you. From that understanding, we can see that it was God's original design for a man to lead sacrificially like Christ. And the woman was to come alongside. Why do I say that? Because what was broken in the curse given by God was Eve's willingness to be led. The reason we have texts like Ephesians 5 that speak specifically about marriage and how the man is supposed to love his wife as Christ and how the wife is to respect her husband is because it's pointing back to what God originally designed with specific purpose and specific roles, but subsequently was broken as a result of our sin. You wouldn't have to be told to love your wife as Christ loved the church if you were doing it, right? And the question that flows from this is, what has this sinful desire done for women, mothers, and society? And church, I tread here carefully with humility, but this is just the way it is. The fruit of that desire was feminism. Feminism is a cancer on the beauty, the grace, and the cosmically God-ordained creation that is the woman. And that's a bold statement, but here's another Feminism is a disease propagated as a cure on behalf of irresponsible men, by irresponsible men, and for irresponsible men. Let me show you what I mean. Feminism convinced women that they were what was really holding them back was men, the patriarchy. They were convinced that all they had to do was give up the beauty of motherhood. After all, it just holds you back anyway. Give up the wonder and the role God created them for and their purity through all kinds of sensual behavior so that they could achieve maximum power and influence in a culture they were told was anti-women. There was no longer a willing submissiveness unto the Lord, but an ungodly desire to rule. It started out as, we don't need men. Our body, our choice. Which naturally gave rise to promiscuity, single-parent households, millions of children slaughtered at the abortion clinics, and irresponsible men appreciated this because they no longer were expected to respect women. Or what God ordained, and they could do whatever they wanted with whoever they wanted, however they wanted, and society would look at them and be like, yeah, it's okay because feminism. Women were told to use their body to achieve power, wealth, and status, and what happened? The Me Too movement. Misogyny on a massive, unrestricted scale. You know what misogyny means? Hatred of women. That's what the fruit of feminism was. It's tried to kill women and their God-given relationships, and it's succeeding. But it hasn't quite finished the job yet. What about those women who still want to be a mother and wife? Again, caveats. Don't shoot me on technicalities. 
Feminine said, no problem. Just get a job outside the home because the home was oppressive, dictating, and sexist. Feminism got women to leave the home, and for what trade-off, I ask? Two salary households for bigger vehicles, houses, and stuff that sits on a shelf that ain't going to go to the grave with you anyway? Worse than that, feminism and society said to women, all right, you've thrown off the yoke of the male. That God-ordained relationship has been destroyed. You've thrown off the yoke of purity. That's been destroyed. You've thrown off the yoke of childbearing, child-rearing, and running your home with integrity and God-centered passion and authority. But still, there's something missing. What is it? Oh, yeah. Even though you're exhausted, burnt out, worn to the bone, and at the end of every nerve and fiber in your body, you're still supposed to make dinner, do homework, do laundry, and look like a supermodel. Because if you don't, then you're just not good enough. But that wasn't enough for feminism either. Oh no, that sickening disease demanded more of the woman. Because once feminism destroyed the marital and maternal relationships, it went after womanhood entirely. You can do anything a man can do. But if you can't, you're not worthy. In fact, you can even be a man. And then people like Bruce Jenner, Rachel Levine, and Leah Thomas destroy and mock what godly feminism actually is. In the name of equality, feminism systematically destroyed the marital and maternal relationships and the woman God created her to be. It took her femininity out back and beat it to death. Yet God, in all his infinite power and majesty and authority, goodness, grace, and mercy, creates this massive universe. He sets the planets and stars in the sky, the moon and the sun. You know, in Genesis, when he's creating those things, it says that he was going to use them for signs and for seasons, for days and for years. Modern science, which finally caught up with the Bible, says it takes the moon approximately 27 days to complete an orbit around the earth. In some cases, nautical navigation still uses the stars. And the earth takes 365 days to orbit the sun. It takes 23.56 hours to rotate once with respect to the sun. The sun's approximately 93 million miles away. Just close enough, not to, or excuse me, far enough that we don't burn up, but close enough where we don't freeze to death. If you stretched out your DNA in one cell of your body, it would be over six and a half feet long. If you stretched out all the DNA and all your cells end to end, it would cover twice the circumference of our universe. God created all of that, and it wasn't until after he made the woman that he deemed it very good. But somehow, feminism convinced us that the disease is the cure. Somehow, after God did all this amazing stuff, he got to the woman and then casually muttered something like, what do I do now? I'm out of ideas. Oh, well, it's clear Adam did something like himself, but I guess uh, I'll just create this vestigial of his uh, rib, and, you know, so he'll have somebody to do the dishes while he sits in the chair and watches the game. Then I'll just regulate her to the house, be a boring, uneventful, purposeless life to take care of kids and, you know, do all those things I really don't care about anyway. How in the world did we get there? How in the world did we take that beauty of what God created and then say, nah, that's not good enough. You gotta do everything. Then you'll be worthy. Jesus said, you can't. You weren't created to. Neither was I. 
The only way we could be worthy is when we're covered in the blood of the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. The de sinful desire to rule outside the authority, realm, and role of which God had created for the woman is bringing more pain and suffering than ever. Again, I say there are caveats in every facet of life, but don't shoot me on a technicality. The truth is, is that women are more tired, worn, experience increasingly heightened feelings of depression, hopelessness, helplessness, loneliness, and purposelessness than ever before. And it's because they bought the lie that the disease was the cure. What's the true cure to rebuild broken and damaged marital and maternal relationships and femininity that feminism and society have sought to destroy? We have to embrace that which God originally created from the beginning. God created feminism, not the world. He created it with beauty and glory and, and, and the image of a holy God. The world took it and destroyed it and contorted it and twisted it just like we do with everything. You can't be everything to everyone. You weren't created to. You were created by an old, awesome, holy and infinite God to bring him glory as you seek to serve him and how he you fulfill the role he created you for. The woman and motherhood were not afterthoughts. God didn't know what else to do and just throw something together. You know why Adam called his wife Eve? The Bible says because she was the mother of all living. Called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. Life is not possible without you. Do you get that? But somehow it's not good enough? You were created with purpose for purpose. God knew what he was doing. You carry on you, in you and through you, the image of a thrice holy God. How can you assume for one moment that what society sells you is better than what the master of the universe created? Maybe, and here's a radical idea, we men could lead the charge in our homes, in the church, in the workplace, and in society that shows how God intended the woman to be honored, to be protected and cared for and cherished and built up. Instead of saying, well, if you don't look like this magazine, you're not good enough. If you don't do this, you're not good enough. You got too many kids. You don't have enough kids. You're not taxiing around at too many places. Not enough places. You haven't made dinner yet? What are you doing? Enough! God died for you because he created you in his image to serve in a beautiful thing that he did, not the world. The world will lie to you, they will cheat you, and they will steal from you. God will never do that. Maybe, men, we could show them how important it is to build them up every year, all year, instead of just one day of the year. Just a thought. The glory of God in motherhood is displayed in the fullness, or on its fullest, when you lay at Jesus' feet your burdens, your worries, your cares, in your exhaustion and find your rest in him. The glory of God in motherhood is displayed in its fullest when women embrace godly feminism. And men for that matter, we need to embrace what God created, not what the world has created. And then the third thing I want us to see is sin destroyed through motherhood. 
Look again at verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. It's amazing that right after the fall in the garden, that God provides the promise of the gospel in verse 15. Like, I don't know if he would have waited any longer. I don't know how much of us would have got past, like, Genesis 4. <laughs> like, Lord, thank you. Thank you. And first thing to know is that Mo- Moses, the author of Genesis, the way he writes it assumes that there will be many that come from the serpent, his descendants. Those that follow the way of Cain, whose deeds are evil, as we have already read. Yet the seed from the woman was not many, but one. One person that would come and crush the head of the serpent. That is, he will destroy the serpent and his followers and will get glory over all of them. And that makes me smile. (laughs) Eve would have placed her hope in these words, and I hope you do. And every time she felt the sting of childbirth or the pains of child-rearing, she would have reminded herself that one day, one day the promised one would come from her lineage. And despite the pain and despite the anguish, Despite all the feelings and failure and inadequacy, Eve would have rested in that promise, and we've got to rest in that too. You know, Mary was just a young girl when the angel appeared to her, and he says, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you've found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And he will be great and will be called Son of the Most High God, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. It's starting to sound like this is the one. This child that comes from woman is the one God promised to Eve in the garden. Jesus is born and lives a life that only pleases the Father. He heals, he restores, he regenerates, brings the dead back to life, gives sight to the blind, makes the lame walk, forgives, shows compassion, leads the leaderless. I don't know, like I said, there's clearly a difference. God created y'all with an ability to extend compassion and empathy that I do not have. My wife's like fuse for when the children disobey is incredibly long. Mine, not so much. I'm like, I don't know how you do it. His mother couldn't be more proud of her son. She knows that he's the promised Messiah, so she's been told, but she doesn't quite fully understand what that means. Not yet, anyway. But Mary, like Eve, will feel the pains of child-rearing when her own son is pierced through. And here is Mary, a mother doing what she does, loving her son, showing how proud she is of him, telling others about him, basking in the glory that her son is the Messiah, but not out of pride, just out of love and adoration for her Heavenly Father. But when things couldn't get better, something happens. Her son Jesus is taken into captivity by the religious leaders of his day. After spitting on him and cursing him and slapping his face, they carry him off to the governor for punishment. It is now that Mary starts to feel palpitations in her heart, but these are not warm fuzzies. She follows the Antichrist cohort that has dragged her son before Pilate. The religious leaders yell and gnash their teeth, demanding Pilate do something. Give us the murderous Barabbas! Crucify Jesus. Pilate has him beaten almost beyond recognition, and bloody and battered, Pilate parades him before the angry crowd of church people and tries to release him. But they yell, 
Crucify him. Crucify him. Let his blood be on us and our children. The guards mock him. They spit on him. They mash a crown of thorns into his skull. Strike him with a reed. Then he's forced to carry his instrument of death all the way to Golgotha, the place of the skull. The crowd continues to jeer and scream insults at him. The Roman soldiers beat him on the way. All the while, his mother falls along with tears streaming down her worn and tired face. As if this wasn't enough pain for one, she stands by as they throw the battered Jesus upon the wood and hammer rails through his feet and hands. As he cries out, yes, he cried out. It was painful. Dragging the rope through the rings, they lift the cross high into the air and that slams into the hole in the ground. Jesus' body is jerked by the force. More pain, more blood. Mother Mary is now in an unexplainable anguish as she begs and pleads with God. But then as he hung there, dying on the cross, he looks down, makes eye contact with his mother through his swollen eyes and bloody face and says, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Disciple, son, behold your mother. Here's what we need to understand. Jesus lived a perfect life as the Son of God who did only those things that pleased the Father. He willingly went to the cross and hung there, suspended in the air by massive nails to take the wrath of God because of my sin, because of your sin, and even his own mother's sin. He died, but he rose three days later and promised that whoever would put their faith in him and repent of their sin would have eternal life and be forgiven. And as he hung there on the cross, one of the last things he did was show compassion and empathy for his mother to provide for her physically, financially, emotionally, and most important, spiritually. Listen, moms, if while he was hanging on the cross and dying to pay for my sin, your sin, and his mother's sin, he was willing and concerned with his mother's well-being, why would you think for a moment he would ever leave you? Even in your darkest moments and struggle, in your hopelessness of pain and prodigals and deaths and illness, feeling like you're never enough, know Jesus cares for you. He knows your struggle. He knows your heart sinks every time you have to face difficulty with one of your children. Physical, spiritual, no matter how old they are. But he came as the promised one to Eve that would crush the head of the serpent and grant you forgiveness from every sin. And he will sustain you in the most hurtful pains of child rearing. I know it's tough from an outsider's perspective. I know some days you feel like you're hanging by a thread, but Jesus cares and he is with you. It doesn't matter how old you are or how old your kids are, grandkids, spiritual children. He tenderly cared for his mother as he died to pay for her sins. He will take care of you. You need only give it all to him. Pray and seek his face and cry out, Lord Jesus, I need help! He said he'd never leave you or forsake you. He's not a liar. He died, and then he came back to life to show that everything he said was true. He created you out of the abundance of his glory and goodness and stamped you with his image. 
It doesn't matter what the world tells you unless they're telling you what God tells you. But if they're not, they're lying to you. And they're saying you're not good enough, you're not worthy. God says, I bled for you. I cared for my mother when I was lying, dying on the cross. Why would I not care for you? Motherhood and femininity were created with the glory of God in full view, not an afterthought, not as some unnecessary role without purpose, but with wonder and mystery. And like I said, the image of a thrice holy God. The glory of God in motherhood is on full display when you lay your burdens, your worries, your cares, and exhaustion at Jesus' feet and you find your rest in Him. When women embrace godly feminism and the glory of God in motherhood is on full display when sin was destroyed through motherhood. Eve may have came from Adam, but Jesus came from Mary and destroyed sin forever. If you put your faith and trust in Him, the Son, the Promised One, you are forgiven, you are cleansed, and you have the hope of eternal life. New life, here and now. That means your desires change, your worries change. That doesn't mean life is, gets easy, you win the lottery, and you settle down somewhere on the farm and don't ever have to do anything. Jesus never promised easy life. But He did promise He would be with you, and He knew what you suffered. Go to Him today. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for the wonderful opportunity to be um, a vessel that you have chosen to use. Father, I pray that your people would realize how important it is to submit to your hand and to be vessels that you've created us for, that your works, your will, your light could shine through us. Father, I pray for all the mothers in the congregation today, Lord, whether they're struggling alone or struggling together. Father, I just pray that you would meet them where they are and you would manifest your glory to them and that you would lift them up and bind them up and strengthen and encourage them, Father. And sometimes that looks like it's through other people. And Father, I pray if there's somebody that you have set apart to be an encourager in that regard, that you would just manifest that presence to them, Lord. Lord, I pray for women in general. Father, we have allowed society to dictate what a woman is supposed to be, what she's supposed to look like, what she's supposed to act like. And Lord, it's just, it's sinful. It's wicked behavior. We have changed the image of God. We have twisted it and contorted it, and it's ugly, Lord. But you are beautiful, and what you created was wonderful and beautiful. Adam spoke poetry, God. Let us be men and women who stand up and fight against the waves of Satan's tyranny in, in the world and, and his... Um, desire to change and destroy that which you've created. Father, I pray if there's any of those under the sound of my voice that are struggling and looking, Lord, I just pray that you meet them where they are and that you would stir their heart and that you would make them realize, Father, that this life is only possible because of your son, Jesus. And Lord, that if we don't have him, if we're not covered by his blood, if we're not following him closely, Lord, that when the time comes and the end comes, when we face judgment, we will be cast out of the presence of the Lord for eternity. Be with your people now, Father, I pray, and just continue to strengthen them on this, the Mother's Day. Lord, we honor and build up those around us that love us and show us compassion continually. Father, I pray. I pray that it would not just be one day a year, but that every day of the year, that as men we would seek to glorify God and to honor and cherish not only our wife, but those other women that are around us, that are, we would encourage our, our wives and, and our church to 
come alongside those that are hurting and suffering and doing it all on their own, Father. 